You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. All right, well, thank you very much, everybody. Uh, Steve Rockwell is here with us. Steve is an Australian, but he lives in South Africa, and uh, he teaches at George Whitfield College. Wife Susie, four boys, ages four to 11. Spot on. Yeah, four to 11. And uh, has, how long have you been at George Whitfield? I've been on the faculty at George Whitfield for four years now, um, and it's a real joy and a real privilege to be able to serve there. And what do you, uh, what do you teach there? So I'm part of the New Testament faculty. I have the great joy, and I really do mean this, the great joy of teaching Greek to the students when they come into college. I love teaching Greek to undergraduate students. Uh, the opportunity to be able to help people understand God better through His Word as they read it in the original language is in a great joy, and we have a lot of fun doing that. Um, I te- teach other courses in New Testament, Gospels, John's Gospel, Paul's Letters, 1 Corinthians, other things like that as well, but Greek's the most fun, definitely. Okay, this is going to be really boring uh, this morning. Um, but, uh, well, so this is Steve, and uh, we're going to have a conversation with him about what God is doing uh, there, not just at George Whitfield, but in all of, of Africa. But before we do that, let's have a word of prayer. Our God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for calling us to this place and for our church family. Uh, we thank you that you have allowed us to partner with others around the world so that the gospel might go to the ends uh, of the world. And Lord, for Steve and his family, Lord, for the sacrifice of his family by allowing him to be here with us and for the ministry of George Whitfield, uh, we give you great thanks. Uh, Visit us, Lord, this morning. Don't leave us to ourselves, but uh, give us your spirit that we might hear what you are saying to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so tell us a little bit about George Whitfield College. So George Whitfield College was established just on 30 years ago now. uh, We're having our 30th birthday next year, and we're kind of excited by that. It was established to be the official denominational training college of the Reformed Evangelical Anglican Church of South Africa. Uh, That was in the late 1980s. Um, But under God, it'll never be less than that, but under God it's had a great opportunity to become far much more than that. Uh, George Whitfield College was established during apartheid South Africa. Uh, South Africa was still closed off to the international community when the, when the college was established. Um, but now, obviously, South Africa has changed a lot over the last 30 years. Uh, the international community is coming into Africa, uh, from Africa into South Africa, and we are, we are greatly blessed at the college to have an immense opportunity to train not just people for the Reformed Evangelical Anglican Church of South Africa, but indeed many people from other denominations and in, across the whole African co- continent as well. Yeah. It, it used to just be called the Church of England in South Africa, which was a whole lot easier for me to remember and say, um, and now they've gone and changed it. Uh, but, but 30 years doesn't seem uh, all that long, and yet when it comes to theological education in Africa, it makes you one of the oldest theolog- theological colleges in the continent. Yeah, I was surprised to figure that out myself. Um, uh, Andrew and I were at a GAFCON conference in Jerusalem, which was uh, a large gathering of, of worldwide Anglicans uh, thinking about how we can uh, further the gospel together. And uh, I was part of a, a subgroup that was meeting, focusing on theological education. There's about 40 of us in the room. And, um, and we had more theological college from Sydney 
150 years old or, or more there and so I'm kind of sh- cowering in the corner and, and then as all the other colleges introduced themselves I realised there was more college and then there was us, we were like the next <laughs> and then all the other colleges were even younger than that so yeah, we, we're starting to become quite established. Yeah. Yeah, so with the, the demographic shift of uh, the centre of Christianity becoming Africa basically, sub-Saharan Africa especially, um, why, why is it uh, is it is it really just been in the last 30 years that Christianity has taken off and necessitated a theological college, or is it? it I mean, we know that the East African revival and things like that happened in the earlier part of the 20th century. Uh, but uh, why has it taken so long for theological colleges to be established in Africa, and why are they important? Why do you need them? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm not sure how aware you are, but the the gospel has exploded over the African continent over the last hundred years or so. It really is quite remarkable what God has done in Africa and it's, it's great excitement and something to give God great praise for. Uh, in 2000 there was 380 million Christians in Africa. It's anticipated that by 2025, and we're well on target for this, that there'll be over 630 million Christians in Africa. I mean, just try and get your head around those numbers. It, it really is quite staggering. So something remarkable is happening um, by God in, uh, in Africa at the moment uh, as we speak and uh, it's exciting to be a part of. In terms of the theological education, there was a movement kind of around the late sort of 70s, um, a guy by the name of B.M. Kato in, in East Africa, following on from the East African revival. What, what he realised was that a lot of people who wanted to get any kind of theological training and leadership would have to leave Africa and generally come to America or to the UK uh, and, and study theology. And he got a little bit frustrated because far too often they never came home. <laughs> and this was a big problem. And, and so he kind of initiated at that kind of stage, around that kind of 70s, uh, mid-70s uh, time, to think, okay, ha- we need theological education in Africa, uh, for Africa, I- in the African context, a good quality theological education. Uh, we need it here so that we can, we can train African pastors and African church leaders in Africa without losing them to the Western world, basically, was, was the motivation behind it. Uh, and so that spawned a, a few theological colleges, particularly across East Africa, um, Nairobi Evangelical Seminary and a few others. Um, and, and I guess GWC is part of that history as well. Yeah, and what, uh, what are the, uh, the big impediments right now in African Christianity? I mean, and I guess this goes back to the question of the need for theological education, especially for pastors, of what is African Christianity up against? Uh, more obviously, especially when you get up uh, closer to the Sahara, you, northern Nigeria, places like that, Sudan, you, you run into Islam. But are there other things that, 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 is, that is pushing theological education to get um, well-trained pastors into pulpits? Yeah, there's a desperate need for theological education in Africa. Uh, one of the great things that's pushing this is that well, it's hard to get exact figures on this, but, but, but roughly speaking, I think a conservative estimate would be to say that 90% of pastors in Africa have, have no theological training whatsoever. 90% of them, no theological training at all. Uh, the gospel has exploded across the continent so fast. It's kind of like, humanly speaking, it's just been impossible to keep up with with trained leadership for that church because it's just, it's just gone spread like wildfire. 
And so people often say that the African church is, is a mile wide but an inch deep. You get the kind of picture, you know. It's just spread so fast. But the depth of understanding in the gospel and the word of God is very shallow. So there's a desperate need of theological education uh, and, and training for the leaders of the church in Africa. Because when you have a church that's led by 90% of pastors who have no theological training at all, I mean, a church of 500 million, you know, that's led by that kind of thing, what you have is a very vulnerable church, uh, extraordinarily vulnerable. It's not that there aren't enough, it's not that there aren't any, but there aren't, there aren't enough people who are grounded in the gospel who are able to guard the good deposit of the gospel, as Paul says, uh, in the face of false teaching. So there's great threats um, persecution-wise in North Africa, as you say, northern Nigeria, uh, southern Sudan. I have a student uh, who will graduate next week. I'm pretty sure he will at least. I hope he passed his exams while I've been away. Um, uh, who's been with us from, from the South Sudan. He lost three of his brothers this year, just this year alone. Uh, three of his brothers have been killed uh, in South Sudan as he's been studying with us this year. He's not with us to escape it. He's with us to train and to dig himself deep into the gospel so he can go straight back into South Sudan, into that context and, and lead the church and, and train others in that kind of context. So th- that kind of persecution is real, uh, particularly up in the northern part of, of Africa. Yeah, can we sit on that for a minute? And then yeah, we'll, sure. we can move Because I think that that's one of the things that, that in the West maybe we have a hard time understanding is because we, we typically don't interact or, or feel a divide, especially between Islam and Christianity. And, a, and not to be polemical, but, you know, in the States, there's this propensity to say, well, we basically all worship the same God, but it's pretty clear that's not a firmly held belief amongst Muslims in Sudan uh, or Christians. No, not moment. at all. Yeah. Not at all. And, and South Sudan's really a hotspot at the moment. Uh, all these things get political and they're, 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 there's multiple factors uh, in this. But as I speak to uh, my brothers and, and sisters from South Sudan and from that kind of area, and even down further through Tanzania and Malawi, um, it, it seems very clear that the, the, the tensions in South Sudan are in, specifically targeted and deliberate at the moment. It, it's a strategy from Islam, that, the Islamic North of, of Africa. They know that South Sudan's kind of like the, the last frontier. If they can break through South Sudan, then the whole of sub-Saharan Africa opens up to the Islamic influence. Because actually. I don't, I don't know if you know if you've got your pocket atlas with you, but South Sudan, I mean, Uganda's there, t- uh, Kenya, Kenya yeah. Tanzania, yeah. Rwanda, it's yeah. it's all right there. Yeah. No, exactly right. And the South epicenter of the East African revival. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And South Sudan's one of the one of the newest nations in the world. I think it was only established 2014, was it? I think, or, or somewhere around there, as 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 its own nation. Um, because of some of these political splits and threats, um, and uh, and Juba, the capital, is uh, is a place that's under a lot of pressure at the moment. Our, our brothers and sisters in Christ could do with a lot of prayer from that. So you've got guys coming from places like South Sudan who are going back into very much the front lines of of, of ministry. Uh, yeah, we've got a great partnership with a college in Juba called Bishop Gwen College, um, and uh, and uh, most of that college and a lot of these colleges around Africa are kind of small grassroots colleges, uh, training pastors who have no training whatsoever, but training them at a kind of, you know, certificate or diploma kind of level. Um, and, uh, and we've got a great relationship with that college. So I think at the moment we have, uh, across our, all our programs at GWC, we've got, we've got five or six guys um, from South Sudan 
and um, and a couple more I think enrolled to come again next year. So next year we might have about seven or eight of them who are who are from South Sudan coming down uh, to study with us, so that they so that they're equipped uh, and grounded in the gospel, able to defend the truth of the gospel and lead the church in 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 the face of such persecution to stand stand true in the gospel. Yeah. It's exciting. And you're about to lead into something that's pretty. Um, so that's that's coming from. Uh, the Islamic world, but what's coming from the West and putting pressure on the African church? Yeah, sure. So, uh, as I said, the African church being 90% led by people who don't have any theological training is extraordinarily vulnerable. And uh, what we've seen over the last 10 or 15 years is a great example of that as the church has um, capitulated really to the prosperity gospel uh, and a lot of that kind of preaching and a lot of that kind of false gospel has come in and infiltrated lots of uh, lots of churches in Africa. Um, people aren't equipped to defend the truth of the gospel to say no. That's actually that's not what the Bible says. Um, and so, a vulnerable church uh, means that it's vulnerable to those kind of false teachings. And unfortunately, the the the, the tinder, the ground is uh, is is ripe for the fire of the prosperity gospel in Africa, um, which is tragic, really. Uh, and uh, far too many people have been have been burnt um, through this over the last 10 or 15 years. I mean, most People of us are, are aware of what that is, but, but break down in about 30 seconds, what, what is the prosperity gospel? What is the message being preached? Well, the message preached says, it, it's kind of over-realized eschatology in one sense. The message preached is that God wants to bless you here and now, um, and that if you aren't blessed by God here and now in your life, and we define blessing by health and wealth and prosperity... If, if those things aren't real in your life, then it's because you haven't had enough faith and God wants you to bless you. Um, you know, which is, a, which is a message which kind of, you can see kind of resonates um, in American culture and society and Western world, you know, as we are so wealthy and blessed. But when you take that message and you, and you preach it and you, you come into a, a township in Cape Town of over a million people who are living in absolute squalor, um, poverty like you, you, you don't know and you've never experienced unless you've been to Africa or India or other parts like that in the world. Shacks where there's no, there's no water, there's no sanitation, there's no nothing. There's a million people living there. And you come in and you preach the message like that to them. It's, uh, yeah, it's deeply disturbing. Um, and it's just, it's just true enough. It's just true enough. There's a ring of truth which makes combating it so yeah, difficult. I think yeah. that's right. And I think God does want to bless us. And, and we... We are blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. It's how we define blessing. Right. Um, and I think that's, that's part of the problem. And the, the real blessing, of course, is, is through relationship with God and the forgiveness of our sins and, and entering into his family. That's the truest of all blessings. Mm. And, um, but, uh, but the prosperity gospel takes that idea and materialises it. Um, and um, it's been tragic. These people who have nothing have been pilfered of the very little they have even by these prosperity gospel preachers who literally, I mean, without exaggeration, fly into Africa on their own private Learjet, uh, go into these townships, tell them that they don't have enough because they don't have enough faith and if they just gave what little they have, God would bless them back and then they take their money and get back on their Learjet plane and fly out again. Mm. I mean, it's just, it's horrific. It really is. Um, so that's a real danger for the African church at the moment. This is where, one of the places where you've seen the vulnerability of, of the church exposed. Another area is in syncretism. Uh, the African worldview is very different to the Western worldview. 
uh, African traditional religions prevail in Africa. Um, and the African worldview is a very animistic worldview. It's, it's uh, ancestral worship and veneration of ancestors. If something good happens to you, it's because you've kept your ancestors happy. If something bad's happened to you, it's because the ancestors are not happy with you. If that's the case, then I should have the worst luck. You're in all face. sorts of trouble. I'm in yeah, big yeah, yeah. trouble. <laughs> So what you need to do then is you both need with to, the living and the dead. Yeah, sure. So you need to go to the local witch doctor um, then, and you need to uh, you need to appease your ancestors, and, and this is this is part of the kind of African world. So they're hedging their bets. So yeah. they're sort of like, I believe in Jesus, but just in case. Exactly right. Or or the kind of syncretistic worldview would say Jesus is just one of our ancestors. You see, and you kind of integrate Jesus into that kind of worldview way of thinking, and so that kind of syncretism is 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 dangerous, obviously. Uh, and it's not the gospel that, that, that the word of God proclaims and that we proclaim. Um, and so that, that's, that's a real danger for the African church as well. I, I know of churches literally where, I was going to say like this, but, but not quite like this, but, but in, the, in, the, in the morning at church you, you can come up the front and you can, you can turn to the right and take communion or you can go to the left and, and see the witch doctor who will stand up the front of the church. You know, I mean, that kind of syncretism is, is, is It's not possible. a prayer station. Hey? It's not a prayer station. No, it's crazy. No. That kind of syncretism Gosh. is possible in a church that is so vulnerable uh, because there's just not enough people who are grounded in the gospel to lead the church. But it know? also points to, to how fertile the ground is for the gospel. I mean, it, uh, Steve is originally from Sydney and and when I was down there a couple summers ago, I was looking around, and uh, it was supposed to be the dead of winter for them. It's July, and yet it was 70 degrees outside. People were frolicking on this, you know, beautiful turquoise blue beach there, and everybody was healthy. And and I, and I just thought, well, it's it's no wonder it's Sydney hard. is heaven. Yeah, yeah no, so, I yeah, understand. Why, yeah, why yeah, do yeah. you need Jesus when when everybody has everything that they could possibly want in the world, and they live in the most beautiful spot that you could imagine, and and so that has its own difficulties, but in Africa, when you are going into these townships where there's squalor, not to use them for your own personal gain, but to, but to see that their, their hearts are crying out for something more and, and that there's an openness to the gospel that, that isn't yeah, apparent in the absolutely, West. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, the, the, the ground is very fertile for gospel growth in Africa. And uh, one of the things that I think I've learned um, living in Africa, as Andrew said, I grew up in Sydney, my whole life, mostly on the north shore of Sydney, which is one of the richest. Yeah, that's really Sydney. nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and one of the things I think I've learned is that the harder life is, the more real the gospel is. Mm. The harder life is, the more real the gospel is. And I think that's a real challenge to us in the Western world, because for many of us in the Western world, life's pretty good. <laughs> and so the converse is kind of a challenge for us as well, you know. The, the better life is, yeah, well, the gospel's good, you know, but, you know. And so I think that's a challenge for us to, to take the gospel seriously as the world for whom life is, is really hard. But life's hard for most people in Africa. And so even for the people for whom life's good, life's hard in Africa. I mean, I live in a fairly nice suburb in Cape Town. Cape Town's an extraordinarily beautiful city, if you've ever been there. Has anyone been to Cape Town? You know, just one. Herbie, would you swim with the sharks? I knew you would have. Yeah. I knew it. I, knew it. I, I swam with the sharks. Uh, I, I have literally been this close <clears throat> to the wide open jaws of a great white shark, five meter. Boom. Now is that? Would that you was an do, experience. Would you would you repeat that? Every or, day. Or or how? Or what do you think is worse or better? Seeing that, or when you return to your four children, four boys who haven't seen you in three weeks, <laughs> it's a similar it's, experience. It's, yeah, there's but blood in the water. That, well, they don't—they don't, the they don't yeah. give you a cage yeah, with the yeah. kids. <laughs> um, uh, 
Yeah. So you Cape Town's do beautiful. Cape Town's beautiful. And even for the people for whom life's good in Cape Town, life's still hard. I mean, I, I live in Cape Town. I live in a beautiful suburb in Cape Town. Um, but we are faced with poverty on every single corner of our street every single day. Uh, we are faced with the reality of violent crime in South Africa. So, I mean, life's short and life is cheap in Africa and life is hard for most people. And so the gospel is real um, and, and, and really real. The hope of the gospel, what the gospel offers... Uh, an eternal perspective, a, a life beyond this, a forgiveness of sins, a, a God who, who, who brings justice. Uh, these, kind of, these kind of realities are, 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 are very tangible uh, when life's as hard as it is in Africa. And so the gospel's very real. So you come and visit us in Cape Town, I'd love to have you and I'd love to take you around and show you part of George Whitfield College and what's happening there. And if you do and you come on a Sunday, I'll take you out to church in the middle of the township, in Kailicha Township. And you will, you will drive through squalor like you, you can't believe. Your jaw will be dropped and you'll be, have your heart broken. And then you'll come into church and you'll sit around with people who are expressing joy in gospel salvation in a way that you've never experienced it either. This juxtaposition of this, this poverty and this angst and this anguish with this joy is... It's hard to describe unless you can actually experience it, but it's, it's real. Yeah. But at the same time, if... if the most western of African nations would be South Africa. Yeah, definitely. No, that's and, for sure. And so what does ministry look like in South Africa, especially post-apartheid? Yeah, sure. Apartheid uh, is over. Next year will be the 25th uh, anniversary of elections, and we're up for a new round of elections in May again next year. So 25 years ago um, since apartheid ended. But the scars of apartheid... Uh, and the legacy of apartheid is still very, very real in South Africa uh, on many different fronts. Um, so South Africa is a very troubled nation. Uh, it's very racially... Uh, racial tensions are at a high at the moment. I think, I think it's probably right to say that, um, that in 1994, when, when uh, the ANC took power, when Nelson Mandela um, became the president of South Africa, South Africa was on a knife edge. Uh, it, it, could, it was a, on a precipice. It could go either way very quickly. It could, it could have dissolved into civil war and retribution and, and, and revenge. You've got to remember that uh, even at the height of apartheid, uh, the white population in South Africa was less than 20% of the population. Right? Now, most people don't kind of understand that. We're talking 80% of the population was oppressed um, by, by less than 20% for, for, for a long time, over 50, 60, 70 years, you know. Um, and so, uh, and so those kind of, they were on the knife edge, really. Uh, is it going to go down that way or is it going to go towards a restitution and a movement forward, a rainbow nation and a great hope? And, and Mandela, of course, we all know uh, him because of the, the incredible influence he had and the ability he had to uh, forgive and to move on and to say, no, we need to put this behind us for the sake of the nation. And, um, and so he moved the, the, the nation in that way, but... I think it's true to say that now, here, 25 years later, you'd, you'd, you'd hope that the progression continued, but, but it's actually swinging back, and, and uh, those tensions are probably more real now than they were 15 or 20 years ago now. Um, mm -hmm. And so that kind of racial tension is a big part of South African life, and uh, the elections coming up next year will be uh, a real issue for the country. Please pray for the nation. Uh, elections in South Africa are a matter of life and death. Uh, in all seriousness, um, and there's often violent protests that associated with election time. Um, so pray for the nation in that way. Um, but again, these troubles uh, grab great opportunities for the gospel um, and, and for the church 
I, I, I worship in, uh, in, a, in a big church. There's about 1,200 people who come along to church most weeks in a multiracial church, which is wonderful. Um, and uh, and we, we sing songs um, from all different languages in South African languages. We sing Zulu songs. We sing uh, Corsa songs. We sing uh, Afrikaans songs. We sing English songs. Um, we worship together as, as one people, and that's a, that's a great testimony to the gospel. Yes, so St. James Church, where Frank Retief was the rector for such a very long time, uh, uh, is, is noted um, for its, its gospel preaching and its faithful ministry and, and its, um, its intercultural uh, milieu. Yeah. But, but it's also known more publicly by an event back it was in the 90s yeah in 1993 we just celebrated the 25th anniversary of this event in 1993 uh, on a busy church night uh, in the late 80s and 90s uh, Frank Retief had an, an extraordinary extraordinary ministry he was uh, you know that I mean this is my word they label him as the Billy Graham of South Africa he just he 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 had such an evangelistic passion and there was such a movement of the gospel and, and, and of the spirit in South Africa at that time because of these tensions and, and, and because of the, the vulnerability of the nation, the gospel was, was real, you know, and people were saying, people say to me now, if, we just had this expectation, if you could get your friend to come and hear Frank, you just believed that they would become a Christian that night, like that was just the way it was and thousands of people became Christians under Frank's ministry. Uh, but on one uh, faithful night in June 1993, um, at, in a packed auditorium of 1,200 people, uh, three attackers came into the church. They, they walked straight in uh, the doors next to the front stage and they opened fire uh, with machine guns. They lobbed hand grenades uh, into the congregation and um, some 15 people were killed only, which is remarkable, and over 50 people um, severely uh, injured and, and critically wounded that night. Um, it was a horrific event uh, for the church, uh, for the nation, uh, actually. But again, an event that God used so powerfully for the sake of the gospel. And um, we just, as I said, as a church, celebrated the twi- 25th year of that um, massacre uh, just a couple of months ago together. And um, the testimonies that flew from, uh, flowed from that event uh, are remarkable. Literally thousands and thousands of people can, can tie their conversion to that event. Um, either being there or the impact of that event afterwards. Uh, one, of the, one of the men whose wives were killed that night, um, he, uh, he, he did everything he needed to do and took his wife to the hospital. His three young teenage daughters that he had left at the church, it was just it was chaos, anarchy, you can imagine. And, um, and, and, and as he came back, he's, he's just left his wife's body in the hospital dead and, and he's come back to tell his teenage children that his, that his wife didn't make it and and that she died, and he picked them up from the church, just told them that his, uh, their, their mother had died, and he walked out the door of the church and had a camera shoved in his face uh, from, the, from the international press uh, who were all there. And they said to him, what do you want to say to these people? And, uh, and I don't know what you can imagine what it would be like for you under those circumstances, but, uh, but the Spirit of God worked powerfully in this man and, and, and through the whole circumstances. And he said, I, I, I don't know why you've done what you've done. Um, I don't know why... I've lost my wife. I don't know why my children have lost their mother. But I want to say to you, I forgive you. <laughs> and Jesus loves you. And uh, we want you to know that forgiveness as well. And that was just so, so powerful 
um, to a nation that was at, on the brinks of civil war when, when everyone was fighting against each other and these kind of events have, that were happening. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, a remarkable ministry and uh, grateful for you, uh, Steve. And um, we'll put some stuff up on the internet for people to find out a little bit more about GWC. But I wonder if anybody has any questions about, um, on that note, uh, any questions for Steve and ministry in South Africa and beyond? I think you've answered all their questions, apparently. How many students yeah, are you So George Bridford College has about 100 students roughly at the moment. Uh, we have undergraduate degrees and postgraduate degrees. We're accredited up to master's level. Um, we are accredited by the Department of Higher Education in South Africa, which is, which is a great opportunity for us. It, it makes our qualification really recognisable throughout the whole African continent. Um, nine out of the top ten universities in, on the African continent are South African universities and it's the exact same accrediting body that accredits our degrees as well. And so uh, that opens up a, a whole stack of doors for us across Africa. Because the reality is right now, post-apartheid, South Africa open to the international community. Africa comes to South Africa to get its education. I just mean kind of secularly, that's what happens, you know. If you're in, if you're in Rwanda, for instance, and you want to become an engineer, well... It, Almost everybody thinks, okay, come down, to George, uh, come down to Cape Town, go to the University of Cape Town, go to the University of Johannesburg, study engineering and, and go back because everyone knows nine out of the top ten universities in Africa are, are yeah. in South Africa. And so to have an accredited theological college in Cape Town makes us kind of uniquely placed to, to actually reach the whole African continent. And, and I experience that every day. I, I mean, I love it. I pinch myself. I sit here and I teach my class and I look out and here's a guy from Ghana and Rwanda and Kenya and Zambia and Zimbabwe and South Sudan and, and all over Africa and they come to sit in my class. I mean, I've got to, I just got to pinch myself. Mm. I get to teach them God's word. I get to ground them in the gospel and then I get to send them back over the whole continent. It's, it's remarkably strategic. Yeah, it's mm. wonderful. Yeah. And my children? Yeah, let me, yeah, let me repeat. Yeah, what is education like for a child in South Africa and what does it look like for you to educate your children? Yeah, thanks. Um, we've decided to homeschool our children. Does that answer both your questions? I don't know. <laughs> um, um, my wife was a primary school teacher and uh, we didn't homeschool our kids in Australia, uh, but when we moved to South Africa, we've been doing that. So my wife, uh, not only is she the mother of four boys, she's also the teacher of four boys. She's with our boys 24-7. She's, uh, she's a remarkable woman. Um, yeah, the education system in South Africa is not great. That's the truth. Um, and uh, it's, it's a difficult kind of situation to find yourself in. I, I, mean, I, don't, I, don't, I would never want to be the South African government. I mean, it really is a, a difficult environment to work in. As I said, the legacy of apartheid is massive and the impact and flow on of that on an issue like education is a big deal. For, for, for 60, 70, 80 years, for the last two or three generations, 80% of your population was denied education. And how do you turn that around, you know, um, in the space of a couple of years? So, so what they're trying to do, of course, they're trying to, trying to do that, but it's now just now first generations of, of families that are, that are actually getting education. Is it an opportunity for you to get to a tertiary education, get qualifications? What they want to do is they want to, um, like every government does, they want to, they want to up their numbers. They want, they want, to, they want the stats to look good. Um, and what's tending to happen to do that is what they're doing is they're just lowering the bar uh, every year. They lower the bar, they lower the bar, they lower the bar. We want, uh, it's matric, it's the, it's the, what's the equivalent? Enrollment. Final, final Graduation. year. Graduation. Yeah, final year at high school kind of, uh, you know, national uh, exams and stuff like that. 
and so that they want as many students to pass their matric examinations so that, so that they can say, yeah, look, we're, our education's going better. But to do that, they don't make the education better, they just make the bar lower. Yeah. You know, so the pass rate was 50%, then it was 30, 45%, then it was 40%, now it's 30%. You know, if you get 30% in the exams, you can pass. You know, and, and so the education system's got a lot of work to do. But this is true of most situations in South Africa. As I said, the legacy of apartheid rings loud and clear. You, know, and it's yeah. 20, you think 25 years is a long time in one sense, but it's, but it's not actually all that long. Uh, when you're trying to deal with generations of, mm. of, of, of um, neglect mm. like that. Well, Steve, God bless your brother, and God bless George Whitfield, and uh, grateful that you're with us. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thank you very much for your time. It's wonderful to be here. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.